Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice. Welcome to the new year. Thanks for joining us in this new year. And also thanks to our sponsors, Smith AI, the virtual reception service for lawyers and US professionals answer your phone and website chats. They're very useful and you can uh, schedule appointments so you can get a free trial with Smith AI. We'll talk a little bit more about them as we go on, but they are sponsoring the show, which is just me and not Ellie, who is <laughs> not here at all. Uh, but Catherine Rubino, also of Above the Law, is here to uh, fill in for Ellie. So welcome. Hi, folks. How are you doing? Yeah, no, um, you, you know, you've noticed we've been absent. That's because we could not find any time where Ellie was around uh, between travel issues and him getting ill. And now he's at the law professors conference. So uh, there's just was never any good time to get everybody together. So Catherine's thankfully stepping in to uh, get, allow us to have a show. So thanks for that. Well, uh, my New Year's resolution is to be kinder to my coworker. So I really had no choice when you asked. Wow. That's, your, that's, <laughs> that's good to know. That's good to know. And uh, for those who don't work here, uh, that's a very significant uh, New Year's re- resolution that I'm sure will be broken, <laughs> possibly before the end of the episode. Uh, yeah, Try so not to tell too many gonna- people. <laughs> No one's going to listen to this podcast. It's great. Um, So it's not like we have an audience or anything. So we're here to talk about the new year and a few stories that have happened since we last checked in with you. Do you grind gears? Do you have anything that you're annoyed about? Well, I probably won't yell like Ellie, so that'll be a distinction. But but yeah, there's definitely some stuff that have been annoying me. How about you? Yeah, sure. (laughs) But see, like... No, well, but there was a story that, you know, we recently ran on Above the Law. What? No, 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 no. Like, how, how often do you listen to this podcast? Uh, pretty frequently. I mean, in fairness, you generally record in the office while I'm in the office, so I hear it as it's happening most of the time. Yeah, there's a format here. There's a thing. Like, you, you like, complain about something that's totally unrelated, and then we banter about it. Like, come on, man. <laughs> Well, my Christmas lights are still up and I actually don't care. I think that we should actually keep our Christmas lights up through February. We're getting to like the ass pit of the winter months. And I feel like Christmas twinkle lights are pretty much the only thing bringing joy. And everyone should keep them up until the the ground melts or something. Yeah, I actually read a thing the other day uh, making the argument that we really need to move Christmas later. Uh, We should just all make the concerted decision to the extent that it probably does not actually reflect any um, specific date, uh, but was rather just kind of chosen by the church and it's therefore flexible. Are you telling me Jesus was not born as a Capricorn? Is that what's going on? Uh, that, that is what, <laughs> what, we, what we're th- saying. Yeah. And so to that extent, it probably is a smarter move to move it to the middle of the winter rather than uh, four days into the winter. Uh, because yeah, then mean, you would have something to look forward so true. to. It's so true. The weather is crap. Yeah. It has, there's no chance anything's melting or we're, we're going to have snow and cold and 
wind for another three months in all likelihood. The only, you know, kind of spot of joy is a little bit of Christmas cheer. It makes total sense if we move it. I mean, it'll never happen, but, you know, it'd be great. Yeah. Well, maybe we can move Festivus. So, uh... (laughs) So okay, so there. See, that was a that was a worthwhile grinding of gears. Well, it's the best you I know, could do. You did okay. All right. Well, good. Well, let's take a quick break. So, listeners, are you missing calls? Are you spread too thin? Interruptions kill your productivity, but clients demand a quick response. The U.S.-based professional receptionists at Smith AI help law firms screen new clients and schedule appointments by phone and website chat. Plus, Smith AI integrates with your software, including Clio and LawPay. Plans start at just $60 per month. Get a free trial at smith.ai. And we're back. So, Catherine, what stories have been happening in the uh, last couple of weeks that you find interesting for all the listeners following the legal landscape? Well, there was one fairly recent story, and and it's kind of a, a kind of cute, seemingly uh, innocuous kind of story. But the more I think about it, the more it kind of sticks in my craw and makes me really pissed off. There was a, a recent um, Supreme Court oral argument, and the attorney in the case, Trevor Cox, he gave the oral argument while his wife was in labor with their child. And it's kind of been going through Twitter and people referring to it as uh, an impressive humble brag or somebody else wrote that it may be a humble brag least worthy of being humble. But it, it just kind of it kind of pisses me off because, you know, a woman who was giving that oral argument would have no option to work through the labor of their child. And it's really only a privilege. It's only something that men get to do is to kind of be that kind of diligent, hard worker that puts their family life on hold in order to, you know, do an impressive thing with their career while their wives are busy giving birth. And that's not something that, you know, every person gets the opportunity to do. And I don't think it's something that we should be exalting as some positive or something worthy of a, or some sort of a humble brag or something like that. I think we need to be like, Hey, that's kind of messed up. We should never ask anyone to do any of those things. And the more we kind of hold up this as a model of look what this guy did, when we know for a fact that women or people who are able to give birth are not able to participate in the same ways, it's just holding up an ideal that is never attainable for everyone. See, I told you I get really pissed about this. The more I think about it, the more angry I get. So your stance is that we should, as a legal Land, uh, culture, we should not allow, uh, or you know, we should certainly not encourage, and potentially not allow men whose partners are expecting to give birth to be forced to do work, you know, right up 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 against that. Yeah, I mean, it just it, it speaks to the whole culture of, you know, elite legal practice that we are willing to f- ask people, whether it's explicitly or implicitly, to sacrifice parts of their personal life in order to be the very best at this. And, and if we don't come to some sort of recognition of the ways in which we are asking, what we ask in order to be elite is only something that people who are not pregnant are able to be and able to do. And then we wonder why 
you know, the amount of men giving uh, oral arguments at the Supreme Court far outweigh the number of women. While even though, you know, we have more women entering law school, fewer of them are becoming law firm foreign partners or giving these oral arguments in all sorts of appellate situations. These are all part of the reason why there's a whole landscape of reasons. And certainly changing one thing does is not some automatic cure. But I think we also have to be very aware and wary of the times when we see something that is part of the problem. And it's more than just, oh, he got to give an oral argument while his wife was in labor. But, you know, think about a woman who's in a, in a firm or someone who could potentially be on a case that might you know, want to do this sort of thing? Are they put in a position of forcing, being forced to delay their family plans? What if they do become pregnant as they're, uh, you know, on a case that may get to, you know, may get started, may get to be argued in front of the Supreme Court or any kind of big appellate court? Are they being put in a position of being like, oh, well, I guess we'll also staff it with a male client just in case, you know, you have to give birth at the time. And, And these are the sorts of opportunities that are being taken away from women because we refuse to, we see, uh, pregnancy and families as a detriment to the elite practice of law. Well, that was a thing earlier this year. There was some firm that tried to file sanction motions against another firm because the woman who was leading the trial team of the other firm asked for a delay to give birth. And so they filed for sanctions for her uh, trying to screw this up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I mean, that's kind of, you know, I I would certainly hope too many people and firms and lawyers aren't taking it to that extreme, but it's even these kinds of little things that, you know, oh, this is, this guy had a ton of pressure on him as he's, you know, waiting to see whether or not his, you know, his wife's status of her labor as he's giving oral argument. Look at all the, all the pressure he's able to withstand as he's also being peppered with questions by the court. You know, this is, seems a lot less awful, <laughs> certainly, um, as someone who's asked, you know, if, lawyers who ask for sanctions just because a woman, you know, asks for a continuance because she's pregnant. But those are all the sorts of small things that make up a landscape where women are not, are increasingly checking out from these, these sorts of positions. Yeah, definitely. Because I'm sure it turns out that he didn't tell the court that this was going on. He only uh, let it slip after the oral argument was right. over. He like reporters learned of it. Yeah. No, it's, it's rough. I mean, he he probably should have been back there, you know, in the waiting room smoking a pipe or whatever it is men <laughs> whatever it is men do these days in in that sort of situation. But yeah, no, like that was that was what he did. And it was it wasn't even like wasn't like it was some DC Williams and Connolly partner who was, you know, down the street. It it, it was a state away. Mhm. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't, I'm sure this guy is great and I, I'm sure, you know, he, he's just trying to do the best he can being, uh, you know, a parent and, and being a lawyer who's arguing in front of the Supreme court. And I don't mean to direct any of the, you know, concern I have about it at this individual because people make difficult choices all the time, but we have to sort of think about why we're making the choices we make and, and how we choose to talk about and report when these sorts of things do happen, you know, I think we need to be very aware of the fact that, you know, as, as cute of a story as it is that, oh, he, you know, this is what he did. It also, we have to recognize that it's not a luxury that a woman attorney would have in the exact same situation. Oh yeah. No. And and that's a good point that it's not so much that he's done anything wrong here. He's done, in fact, what he would have been expected to do. I don't think that 
the powers that be would have expected him to do anything but this when confronted with the opportunity of, you know, representing uh, a client in this case. Right? In this case, it was a state, right? Yeah, and in front Virginia, of the Supreme Court. Yeah. Anyway. So, so is there any recent stories that have kind of stuck in your craw that you want to talk about, Joe? Yeah. So also kind of on a the culture being broken, this one comes out of the University of Michigan's law school. Uh, they had a situation, like most schools do, where in accordance with a lot of the legislation from the American Disabilities Act and just generally how how schools try to deal with potential discrimination, they make accommodations for those who have any condition that could, could be construed as a disability for, you know, getting a test completed on time. They will afford reasonable accommodations up to and including extra time for those folks to finish their exams. That's all well and good. It's fairly common practice among law schools. Law schools, undergrad, I mean, I think that this is, you know, as you were saying, a very common practice. Uh, Some student that we don't name because our policy is generally speaking that students are allowed to be morons. Um, (laughs) So, and we we give them the opportunity to get their, uh, get themselves back on track. Some student wrote to the school-wide comment board that, uh, yeah, these people were ruining the curve for him, so. <laughs> Delightful. Uh, yeah. I mean, it is it is the kind of dumb thing that happens out there. There are people who, especially at 1L level, who are, A, unnaturally worried about their curve, and, B, uh, not yet ingratiated into common sense enough to understand what, you know, reasonable accommodations are and how important these are for folks who just need them to, uh, to you know, be on the same playing field as other folks, not because they aren't capable, but because there's one thing that they, they you know, they, they can't do certain things at the same pace, and so that needs to be uh, addressed with a reasonable accommodation. So that was the story. Afterwards, though, is what I'm more interested in, uh, because after I wrote this story, I think everybody kind of agreed this was a bad thing that the student had done, complaining about it. The university sure. was quick to point out that uh, that didn't reflect their values and why they did what they do, and that was all well and good. Uh, what was more interesting to me as somebody who writes on the internet and has kind of a public life like that, uh, finding people who can point to and show me new ways of thinking about stories that I may not be you know, in a position to see or understand. Uh, sure. So one of the things, one of the things that was interesting to me was there was initially some pushback over my use of language like "disabled" in the piece, which that that is a difficult one because there's a, there there are people who suggest that there's problems with utilizing language like "disabled" for folks who have th- these various conditions. That said. I did what I did because as far as utilizing that language, because that is the language of the statutes and the regulatory regime that is at play here. Uh, but sure. it does create, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a iffy place though, you know, like at a certain point as a journalist, I'm reinscribing those sorts of, that sort of rhetoric uh, by utilizing mm-hmm. it. Now, granted, I'm doing it because that's what the law is, but you know, that I bear some responsibility for 
for the language choices I'm making too, right? So that was an interesting thing. And it's always good as a person who writes out there to be self-reflective about whether or not, I'm not altogether sure I would have changed that particular usage in a different situation, but it was important to understand that that is a concern and to be able to flag it, you know? Sure. So, So you were saying that, you know, there are some people who have responses to our articles that, you know, really felt you feel like it helped you develop some of your thinking on these issues. Is is this one of those cases where, you know, so you had some nuanced conversations with actual readers that weren't just a onslaught of hate mail? Yeah, no, absolutely. I did. Uh, There were some folks who thought it was awful or whatever. uh, And I addressed them and some responded, some didn't. Others, though, came in and said that actually, from their perspective, as you know, folks who are in this position, they were like talking in disability rhetoric like that and ableist rhetoric like that. In this way, they did not find problematic. Uh, and they kind of supported the language choices that I'd made in that they understood that why I was doing them and saying that that actually isn't a problem uh, in this context. So it was nice to hear from people from all sides explaining how they felt about it so I could develop a better picture. One more interesting comments that was made was from somebody who said that the use of disability rhetoric wasn't actually a problem, but the thing they did have an issue with that they wanted to point out to me, which I've already used in the context of this podcast now that I think about it, is they said that I should have been more concerned about using language like moron, which we use colloquially for people who do things like write posts that say, you're wrecking my curve. However, (laughs) the term itself began as a clinical definition for people who had certain mental conditions. And so its usage as something that, you know, to denote dumb decisions, kind of, is actually reinscribing that kind of anti- some kind of ableist rhetoric, which I thought was interesting. And it it does put you in a weird place, because I think that's probably true that a lot of that language came from there. But on the other hand, there's some level to which we're getting so divorced from that original meaning that does it still ring true? And certainly it's not something that would strike me off the top of my head as ringing true like that. But it's also something where, of course, it doesn't because I have the privilege of not thinking about that every day. So it did kind of inform how I how I think about that and where I use it and why why I use it and whether or not that's a problem. It's it's important to just always be thinking about these things even if you aren't making a change, right? Like as a as a person writing out there to have it front of mind even if you go forward with it, it's it's still important to be cognizant of it, you know. And one of the things that I kind of think are is very interesting about this dialogue that you were able to have with the readers is that even though, you know, at Above the Law, we closed comments about three years ago now, uh, even though we don't have comments, we still are able to have dialogues with our readers, you know, whether it's we have our email addresses widely available on the website, we all have social media, Twitter, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But I think that what we're finding largely is that old-fashioned comment boards are very much a relic of the early 2000s and not something that is super necessary for websites in in the late uh, teens. Yeah, it, I will say that I had far more, far more engaging and valuable conversations about this 
because people took the time to engage directly rather than mm-hmm. have to fight through the boards that I don't know if people remember the old above the law boards, but there was a lot of like, "Dur, you're dumb, fat, blah blah blah." Uh, that would be some something. <laughs> Those are the that, more benign comments that used to be on the yeah. ATL comments. Right. I mean, there was lots of sexual violence, obviously. Uh, yeah, yeah stuff terrible like that. stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, and folks who even wanted to have a constructive conversation in that board were always drowned out by all of those those comments. I think that we have a. It, obviously, it requires more active work on the writer's part. And back in the day, the the comment boards could exist and people could feel like they've said their piece, whether or not we ever looked at it or not. But now, if somebody does, you know, at you on Twitter, you do have to look at it, evaluate it, engage it. And that's something that I think has actually made the conversation better. Uh, It makes it a little less you know, you have a little less self-aggrandizement by being able to say, hey, look, that's my name there calling Ellie Ellie a, a walrus, but which was a thing that happened a lot. But you don't have that, but you do have the ability to talk to us. Uh, it does require us to, you know, read our emails and respond, but I think that we're pretty good about that. Yeah, yeah and I think, I think we had a recent story, I'm pretty sure you wrote it, about, you know, some of the legal internet or commenters, even though, you know, at ATL, we've closed the boards that they really have found other homes, um, kind of across the internet. Yeah. Uh, the poor ABA journal has, they, they never got rid of their comments. They're still there. You have to affirmatively click to enter them, which is a practice that even we were doing at the end, but yeah, and you, you have to click to enter them, but they have also, you know, inevitably taken the turn. And while there are people there trying to have good, substantive, intellectual engagement with the stories that the ABA Journal's writers are actually writing, they just keep getting derailed by all manner of awful stuff. Uh, Mostly weird conspiracy-mongering people who then, you know, incite everyone else to fight them, and even those fights get more and more aggressive and, you know, reaching the point of violence. And it just... They're just kind of poisonous places because they reach out to the lowest common denominator who unfortunately has the power to ruin everything for the people trying to have a good discussion. Yeah, I mean, I think that once you're you're writing something on the public forum that is the internet, you're kind of become a beacon for all manner of people, right? <laughs> Anyone with an with a phone or an internet connection of any sort can read and comment and respond to your stuff. And I think that uh, what lots of different publications are trying to grapple with is what is the best way in order to have the conversations. Is it on forums like Facebook or Twitter that are kind of third party that at least have some sort of a a name attached to them versus these sort of anonymous comment boards, which is something that we had above the law back in the day. And it's kind of an interesting dichotomy as we're going forward and trying to, you know, figure out what's the best uh, mix for not just for the sanity of the writers, because, you know, whatever, we signed up for this. But, you know, also for folks who are interested in engaging in a lot of these questions. Yeah, I just it just fundamentally struck me that this is not the publication's job. Right. Like you, you don't run your own fan site as you know, if you were a celebrity, <laughs> right? It, it, and that's kind of what it's like. The Our job is to put out a product that the millions of clicks will like. And whether or not they like it, or that I shouldn't say like, that they will read and 
consider uh, whether they like it or not. And at a certain point, maintaining those those boards that were only frequented by a handful of people, that's resources and time and energy that takes away from the actual audience. And you just have to recognize that that's not our job. If people want to engage in those stories in another forum, we have forums like that. Places like Facebook and Twitter, they exist solely so people can make commentary about things. That's not what we are doing. Uh, and so, you know, follow Above the Law on, you know, ATL, at ATL blog on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter at Joseph Trees, at Catherine One, whatever. Or wait, are you just, you're Catherine One, right? Yep, at Catherine yep, One. Yeah, yeah. At Catherine One. Follow, you know, be a fan of the site on Facebook, whatever it is. But those are the forums where third parties run them to have that discussion. Don't, like, don't expect that we're going in a position, frankly, to take the time to maintain a space for people to talk about the site. Our job is to have the site, not to host the place where people can talk about it. And yeah, and so to close the loop, that's the thing. The ABA Journal is kind of in that place that we were a few years ago where they had these great conversations that are getting derailed. And so uh, when I saw it, I was very, I, I felt kind of a, a pang of, oh, I, I feel where you are. And then I also felt a bit of guilt because, I mean, I'm sure these are people who would otherwise be on our site complaining <laughs> before we closed ours. So, Joe, we're at the end of the year, and I have to ask you, what was the best legal story of 2018 in your mind? We're actually into the whole new year. <laughs> so it said, of 2018, like, what, what was the legal story that spoke the most to you? I mean, I don't know, spoke the most to me, like, that I most enjoyed. Like, they're, they're kind of all over the place. I mean, the, the legal story of the year was the various actions of the Supreme Court, the, like, loss of Kennedy and the whole Kavanaugh kerfuffle. The story that I enjoyed working on the most was probably the uh, Schlossberg story, which was the uh, random lawyer shouting a bunch of racist stuff in uh, Midtown Manhattan, and then the fallout from that. That was the most kind of fun I had, like, following a story from its Early birth moments. to, you know, yeah. I had a lot of fun this year following the various cases again like i don't know like it depends on what you're saying but i mean those are two sure. that that crop out to me for me i think that you know what one of the big stories that sticks out in 2018 is the big law raises i think a core of the above the law audience is always going to be concerned about what's going on in big law and you know when Millbank decided to raise salaries um across the board not, not a not a ton mind you but but enough to kind of move the needle and then Cravath came over the top for at least for senior associates and Simpson matched those numbers and then also added in a special summer bonus um, which you know Milbank and, and the rest of them eventually matched all of those numbers I thought that was a really exciting time for those who follow the ins and outs of the world of big law yeah. No, I mean, that that's a good one, too. Like, the, the legal industry news of the year was definitely the raises uh, and the way in which it's pushed the whole industry a little bit further down and down the line of, uh, of a reckoning, I think. Like, I do mm -hmm. feel as though there's there's a flattening, at especially at the top, uh, where, you know, you're getting the same giant salary in certain – like, in I'll pick on Houston again uh, – in Houston <laughs> as you are in New York City. And – you know, at what point does that break? Uh, and mm -hmm. I think we thought that we talked about this in 2016, and now it just got a little more acute. So, yeah. Anyway, 
Cool. So thanks for, you know, pinch hitting for us here with uh, Ellie not around. Anytime. Cool. That's Catherine Rubino. She's at Above the Law. She also is the host of her own podcast called The Chabot, which talks about a lot of these issues uh, about women in law and... Uh, and Diversity and identity you know, Discrimination. And yeah. Yeah. So... Thanks for listening. You should read Above the Law, as always. You should be following all of us on Twitter. I'm at Joseph Patrice. He's at L-E-N-Y-C. Catherine's at Catherine1. You should be following the Above the Law Instagram account, which I gather we have. Not that I've been very active in it, but I know that it's out there. You should you know, be subscribed to this podcast. You should be giving it reviews, all those sorts of things. You should check out smith.ai, who again, thanks for sponsoring the show. And you should be listening to other Legal Talk Network shows. There's a bunch of them. I sometimes host on the road whenever we find ourselves at a convention together. So, you know, there's some episodes there. There's obviously Thinking Like a Lawyer and a bunch of other good ones out there too. So check them all out. And with all of that, I think we're done. We'll talk soon. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.